Well, last week, uh, if you were here, there was some talk of distress, and uh, we just read there that in this really domestic little passage, Paul's acknowledging his distress. So that just puts a frame uh, on what could be understood to be his experience in this little little letter to the Philippians. Last week, I um, uh, introduced things like this. Uh, often in one of Paul's letters, you can, you can look at sort of key phrases or even words and uh, those phrases pick up at least one sort of appearance if you join them together of what's going on in the book. So here we are right at the end. And uh, last week I suggested that Paul essentially is saying, I thank my God that to live is Christ. And then there's this golden centre, or this majestic uh, magisterial centre, and we're called to have the same mind as was in Christ Jesus. Don't put your confidence in the flesh. Don't put your confidence in the flesh. And I'm going to come back to that a little bit later. I'm going to have a little bit of a thing here because I think this is a real challenge for us today. The notion of of holiness and humility as we find it in Jesus, as revealed by Paul in Philippians, this notion of going down in humility to be risen up is the highway, as it were, of holiness, the pathway to becoming more like Jesus. And the interesting thing is that this is exactly the opposite to the mind that has confidence in the flesh. The other mind that confidence in the flesh is reflecting on, believe it or not, in scripture, is the mind that is is that which succumbs to the voice of Diabolos, the devil in Greek, or Satan in Hebrew. Now I'm just mentioning that because I'm going to come back to that in the middle of the talk. Have the same mind, Paul says, as the high point of Philippians as was in Christ Jesus. Have no confidence in the flesh, but press on as you join in imitating us as we do this. Stand firm then in the Lord. So, that's uh, where we are, and as we begin our little domestic passage today, which is a concluding passage, his first word is, I rejoice. So here he is, he says, share in my distress, and in the situation that I'm living on, in I rejoice. In fact, in Philippians, he says it six times. It's everywhere. It's not just a sort of a bit of advice or an afterthought. This is the nature of Paul's life in distress. Now, today, we don't hear... It's sort of a C.S. Lewis word, joy. He wrote a book called Surprised by Joy. It was the autobiography of his conversion. And if you haven't re- read it, do yourself a favour. We don't hear joy very much. It's actually probably been replaced with happiness. 
I just want my kids to be happy. I hear that a lot. I just want my kids to be happy. Now, this is a serious question for you. If someone wants their kids to be happy, what is the content of this happiness? Physically, materially, what is it that parents want for their kids that will lead to happiness? Any suggestions? Shalom, peace, contentment will bring them happiness. What's the content of that? Okay, what they have, where they are, and who they're with. Okay, so that sort of sum it up. What they've got, who they are, and who they're with. And what they do. So those things, if we can just manage those things, we get this recipe for happiness. Linda? Aha, there's another good one. They'll be happy if they're making some sort of positive contribution to others. That's a very rich tapestry for a recipe for happiness. I suppose within that is this underlying presupposition that happiness will be found in relational and material and we had that added sort of contributory um, uh, uh, set of ingredients. Uh, There's no doubt that happiness is linked to economics. Uh, Generally, most people think that more's better and research shows that happiness is at best loosely but loosely related to what we have and to economic prosperity. Phil Hurst actually uh, in English pounds, I think it was about 40,000, 5,000 English pounds, that uh, somewhere around about 70,000 Australian dollars, above which people stop reporting that their money improves their happiness, their, their material wealth improves their level of happiness. I just want my kids to be happy is, I don't know, it sort of concerns me. It makes me feel uneasy. I, I suppose it, it seems to set everyone up for disappointment. I mean, what happens if my kids aren't happy? Um, who's responsible? Am I responsible if my kids aren't happy? And if I am, what should I do about it? What am I responsible for? It just seems like a recipe for maybe failure and possibly recrimination, especially if happiness and money are linked together because it's quite possible that they're unhappy and you've got the money. (laughs) And it even gets trickier... Um, one of my favourite, and Cheryl shared this lovely translation of the New Testament by J.B. Phillips, and it was a, a translation of the New Testament for kids in schools, and in the Beatitudes, that's the blessed are's, etc., blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble, blessed are the poor in spirit, etc., the beautiful attitudes of Jesus, um, Phillips chose to use happy in the place of blessed, which I thought was interesting. So the Beatitudes start with 
Happy are the humble of mind, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Happy? Happy are the humble of mind. It doesn't quite work. I, I don't like it. Um, it. It seems to be asking way more than that, to have the same mind or attitude that was in Christ Jesus and you'll be happy. Hmm. It seems like a bigger idea than that. Now, Paul's situation is dire, and he doesn't use the word happy. He uses the word joy. It's a deeper thing than happiness, and he uses it a lot, at least six times, and he rejoices. And this is rejoicing in abundance and scarcity. It's not dependent on his economic situation or reputation or where he lives. It does seem to be connected to his relational resources, though, supremely uh, his relationship with the Lord Jesus. And in verse 11 of what we read this morning, we discover that he didn't just have it, this rejoicing, he learned it, something he learned. You get this sense of going deeper. Paul's a joyful man and he's learned to be joyful. And it seems to involve living above circumstances, not under them. Happiness seems to depend on what's happening to you. Happiness seems to depend on what's happening to you. Joy depends on who is holding you irrespective of what's happening to you. I rejoice in the Lord, Paul says. Joy depends on who is holding you irrespective of what's happening to you. So this morning, I just want to pursue one idea, one thing. What can Paul teach us about how we as Christians can, we're now at the service station in my mind, I'm at a service station, we've parked the car, we've taken the cap off the bowser, we've got the nozzle, 98 Ron, the good stuff, the question I want to ask is how can Christians fuel joy? How do we do that? And what's the content of it? What's the content of it? Or, to put it another way, in a world where enough is never enough, just ask Howard Hughes when they asked him, he said always just a little bit more is enough. In a world where enough is never enough, what do we need enough of to fuel and sustain joy? Okay? Now, as we head there, there's just one thing I can tell you now you do not need more of. You do not need more of. Keep in mind that when our lives are frequently fixed on our circumstances, 
aren't they? What's, what's going on? When our lives are fixed on our circumstances, not fixed on who we're held by in our circumstances, got it? We fix on it, not who's holding us in it. What we don't need to be doing is listening to that little voice that accompanies us when we're obsessed by our circumstances. And the little voice goes something like this. It strokes us and it says, oh, it's not fair. They're not fair. You don't deserve this. They're there. I understand. You have the right to be miserable just now. They're there. God is a stinker. Look what he's letting happen to you. Those Christians are stinkers too. Why would you bother hanging around them? I understand. Only I understand. That little voice, that little Hebrew Satan, Greek Diabolos, devil, that little voice that joins in with our flesh and is not the mind of holiness and humility that is on the highway to holiness. It's another voice. And the problem with that voice that speaks to us and that we listen to is that it's a, the voice of a liar. It's the author of lies from where that voice comes. And I don't need to be entertaining liars. The evil one is a liar. And to put it in the vernacular, he hates your guts. He wants to take you down a drain pipe that will implode and self-destruct you. And it does again and again and again. So we don't need to listen to that voice that leads us away from Philippians 2, the humility, holiness highway. So, in the final verses... There's just two things that fuel joy, and here they are. Now, I don't want to say this is everything that will fuel joy. Totally not. I'm just saying, here's a guy who starts with saying, I rejoice, and he said it six times, so he must mean it. Here are a couple of things as he closes in this little domestic passage with the Philippians that he has this absolute conviction, I rejoice. And I think we should know what these things are. The first is a deep conviction that God is holding us in our circumstances. God is holding us in our circumstances. It's interesting where Paul uses rejoicing. The first one is in chapter 1, verse 8, and it's when the Christians around Paul are proclaiming the gospel out of rivalry and envy. And Paul says, I rejoice. I rejoice, as long as the gospel's preached. It's the Christians. 
that that little voice is saying, don't believe them, don't like them, they're nasty. The second time we hear it is when he's pouring his life out as a sacrificial offering unto death on the altar. That's the picture. And he says, I rejoice if I pour my life out. The other three times, where is the rejoicing? It's in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord. That's where the joy comes from. So it's a deep conviction that God has got you in your circumstances. Rivalry, envy, having your life just poured out. And where's the joy? In the Lord. He's got you. He's holding you. It's God who's the fountain, not my circumstances. And Paul learned this contentment in the school of putting his faith in Christ into practice in the world. He learned it by practicing it in the world. He learned contentment by putting himself in countless situations that cast him out of his comfort zone and into discomfort that could only see God come through or not come through like our friend in Pakistan. He's only got God at the end of the day. Now, that phrase, come through, God comes through, does not equal fixing the problem, your problem or my problem, like God's a a personal magician. It's much deeper than that. Learning contentment in in verse 12 has this picture where it takes... Uh, what's happening to us is taking place in a, in a situation where we're accepting the situation as a schoolroom, not as a torture chamber. As a schoolroom, not as a torture chamber. So the deep conviction that God has got us in the circumstance is a schoolroom, not a torture chamber. If we use discontent as a noun, as a name... Discontent always wants to escape somewhere else. If I just could get out of here, I'd be content again. Somewhere other than where I am is where my life will improve. But that's always somewhere other than where the sovereign hand of God has actually placed you. And you actually find that people who run all the time are not content people, are they? You know them. It was interesting, you know, 10 years in community and we had so many conversations with young people who had come to learn about Jesus in this radical kind of commune out the back of whoop whoop doing crazy things together in Jesus' name and the number of people that would trot this phrase out, I came here to learn about Jesus but you've ruined my spiritual life. You've ruined my spiritual life. I think, really, I think maybe God's ruining your spiritual life and maybe it's a spiritual life that needs ruining. I remember one guy named Lindsay, he said, hmm, I know it's a two-year, two-year course, two-year program, but he said, I'm, I'm only coming, I'm start, I, I, it's been a year now, I'm going. I remember the, uh, the boss said to him, why, Lindsay, why are you going? He said, I got what I came for. And the boss said, I wonder, if you, I wonder if God's got what he brought you here for, Lindsay. 
wonder if God's got what he's brought you here for. In your circumstances, God getting what he's brought you to this place for. I wonder as you think about your life, you know, has there been a Christian or a church or a pastor or a small group that's ruined your spiritual life? It's probably the place where God's at work within you rejoice it's interesting the word content actually refers to a country a country that has every resource it needs when he says he's content it's referring to this notion that we have every resource that we need nothing needs to be imported from outside they are content they are full they have everything they need where in Jesus Christ So, step one to fueling joy is to be in that place where God is near and he's all-sufficient and he's got this. Nothing else is necessary. Will you go with him in that? Will you go with him in that? That's the first thing. The second thing, he's Lord of our circumstances. He's also we find rejoicing and contentment in life-giving partnerships. There is a relational aspect to it, sharing spiritual and practical partnership. I I wonder, are you the sort of person that tends to distance yourself from others spiritually? You just drift off. Um, Avoiding our place in the partnership can be deadly do you know how big cats hunt? They find an animal that either tends to isolate itself or is isolated because it is weak and then they pair that or they, they, they peel that animal off and they get it on its own and they seek it and they destroy it. And I wonder, do you know of any Christian who during this COVID time, uh, under the guise of sort of spirituality, has uh, distanced themselves from community, from Christian community. Can I really encourage you, if you know anyone like that, don't give up on them, reach out to them. They're actually at risk in that place. Partnership is the place where joy in the Lord comes from. And look, there's just a couple of things that we actually see characterise partners in the text here. Verse 14, partners share in troubles. Paul says in verse 14, it was good of you to share with me my affliction, my troubles, in my distress, uh, here in verse 14 as well. To share in my distress. This means to share together in a common purpose, So we might be sharing distress together. I can't tell you who, but there's someone in the 730 congregation who's extremely ill at the moment. There's someone else in the 730 congregation who has known unquenchable illness over the last couple of years. And just for me as the pastor, it is such a beautiful thing to see them finding each other 
one having recovered from serious illness, the other one being seriously ill, as they partner and support one another in this distress and this trouble. For a pastor, it's heartbreakingly joyful to see that. It's beautiful, but painful. So this sharing together, bearing burdens together, and not criticising others who are having a crack at something. You know, we can get like that. Now, that's the flesh. But saying, hey, they're having a crack. They're not as good at Kieran as Kieran is at it, but they're having a crack. Let's share troubles, distress, afflictions, and build each other up in that common purpose. We share resources together. We share resources together. There's a lot in this little domestic passage about essentially financing Paul's mission to bring Jesus to the world, which is what he's doing. You'll notice right at the very end, and we're not really going to touch on it, but greet this one and that one. Huge move of God in the Praetorian Guard in Caesar's household, for goodness sake. It's so exciting. And the Philippians, right from the very first day, took their wallets out when no one else did and said, we're going to resource your ministry. Giving and receiving. And it's made them glad together. They rejoice. It fuels joy. Partnering together in that common purpose. They share by persisting together. So partners bring joy when they share in trouble, when they share resources. They bring joy when they persist. Jen, you've been in YWAM for a fair while. You've persisted. We've persisted together in the works of ministry. Paul is grateful for the sharing, the way they committed to him and have stayed committed, even though they haven't seen him for a long time. If you support people in mission, persist in the partnership. Continue, keep going. And Paul says it's not even so much about the money. You know, Epaphroditus has brought him some money. He says, Thank, thanks a lot for sending Epaphroditus with the money. But it's not really about the money, it's about the partnership. That's what I love. Have you got friends that you've shared spiritual adventures with that you haven't seen for ages? Why don't you dig them out? Why don't you write to them? Why don't you find out where they are or send them a text or just do something and say, hey, what a great time we had together. In my heart, I'm still partnering with you. That brings joy. This fuels joy. Nearly there. By doing the first three things, someone else's success kind of, we get the profit, Paul says. We get the profit. It's like they're doing it, but oh, it's so great. And it fuels joy. It fuels joy. And finally, most importantly, it brings pleasure to God in verse 18. I've been paid in full. I have more than enough. I'm fully satisfied. 
and my God, who fully, sat, who fully satisfied every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I've got the wrong verse. But it's there. When you're up here doing this and that happens, you better not look for it or you'll be in big trouble. But it's clearly there. It brings God pleasure. Find the verse for me, Kira. It brings God pleasure. Am I in the right book? <laughs> ah, thank you so much. See, I, ha- I actually had the right verse, but I lost it. Uh, the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, brings God pleasure as we participate in partnership and generosity. Isn't that great? They're things that bring joy. God's got this. He's holding it. And we're partnering in it. Just have a think about it for a minute. Jen, you and and, um, Chelsea at times, you've had things going on and in small ways and maybe large, I don't know, you've had partners and it brings joy. Calabay, we have these brothers in the Lord. We share in their troubles. We pray with them. We share our resources. We persist together. We get the profit of their ministry, which grows all the time, and it brings God, God's pleasure. Does that just not make you a little bit joyful? As we think about the common down the road, some people have really committed to that. Some of our people have committed to that. And as they flourish with over 50 people, part of the common now, does that not bring you a little bit of joy? As we watch our young people grow and, and, and be served, it does not bring a little bit of joy. So rejoice. We're not isolated individuals. We're part of something much bigger. God is above our circumstances. He's partnering with us and each other. And together, joy. Lord, I bless your people today with the truth of the word of God that in Christ we have all things that we need to sustain us and to strengthen us. Lord, open the floodgates of joy today. Pour your joy, Spirit of Jesus, onto these people as they fix, not on the spirit of the world, but on the spirit that is within them in Christ Jesus who goes down and lifts up. And there, we're not in a torture chamber. We're in the school where saints grow to be more like him and together find joy. Bless your people in Jesus' name. Amen.